Holy God, thank you for those words of those two songs. That the longer we serve you, God, the sweeter is our experience walking with you. We're so grateful for your love. We're thankful, God, that even when we don't know the future, even when change comes, even when we aren't sure what to expect, that we know that we are being held by you. As the psalmist says, you hold us by the hand, you guide us, and you lead us into glory. We're so grateful for that gift and that promise. Now, as we are the scattered body of Christ today, God, would you, by your Holy Spirit's power, connect us today as we open your word together? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, friends. There was a great article that I read by Glenn Shrivener, and he shares that historians estimate that the Christian population in AD 251 was just shy of 1.2 million. That's 1.9% of the population of the empire at the time, which was much higher than the previous century, but still a very small minority in the empire. And then a plague came. Perhaps it was measles, we're not exactly sure. Some towns in Italy were completely abandoned. The military was weakened, yet somehow Christians shone brightly through this process. In our stories that shape us today, we hear from the third century bishop, Cyprian of Carthage, looked a little like this. He says these words, how suitable how necessary it is that this plague and pestilence, which seems horrible and deadly, searches out the justice of each and every one and examines the mind of the human race, whether the healthy care for the sick, whether relatives dutifully love kinsmen as they should, whether physicians do not desert the afflicted. He says that a plague searches us. That the plague, in the midst of this plague that they discovered in themselves, the way of the flesh, which was self-preservation, or the way of the spirit, which was self-giving sacrifice. In what ways has this plague, modern day, this virus, has it been a searching time for you? See, during that time in 251, Christian death rates were significantly lower than the population, one historian notes. He says, only a 10% death rate among Christians. That's a pretty heavy only to say, isn't it? But the love for one another that Christians displayed meant that they were more readily infected, yet survival rates were higher due to the care that they gave for one another. The startling thing is after the plague, the Christians were stronger and the Christian movement was stronger. The author is quick to note that at that time, it was very different than now. They didn't have hospitals and dedicated doctors and nurses who would show up to care for people who were sick. Again, shout out and gratitude to all those of you who are medical professionals with all of our hearts. Seriously, thank you. You make a difference. We are so blessed by you. And our society is so blessed by your sacrifice. And during the darkest days, that we've experienced, you've been there and you keep showing up. In those days, there were not medical professionals who showed up. So the Christians cared for each other. So right now during this plague, it looks a little different because oftentimes care for one another shows up like distance and that makes this pandemic particularly hard. 
Yet the truth that Cyprian points out, I pray holds truth for us. He said this, the early Christians had more resilience because they had a robust hope in the face of death. And they were stronger as communities, forging even closer bonds through the sufferings that they'd faced. Oh, that God could say that it's true of us, that we develop more resilience and more robust hope in the face of death because of what we've faced together by how we have gone through our sufferings together. How did Christianity go from a marginal movement to six million believers in just less than 50 years by AD 300. Historian Rodney Stark will tell you that the plagues were a major factor in the growth of the movement of Christianity. In challenging times, believers found hope rising up in them as they faced the challenges together with Jesus and with one another. And it was that hope rising up in the midst of adversity that caused the movement to explode with growth. What is it for us today? Even before these last eight months, this quote is preceding this time. Dr. Armand Nicolai Jr., a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and editor of the Harvard Guide to Psychiatry, notes the rampant increase in depression in contemporary American society. The World Health Organization shares that close to 800,000 people take their own life each year and that many more attempt death by suicide. Do you want to just admit it right now? I know this isn't as fun to put in the chat as our favorite color or what we're thankful for, but do you want to admit that you've ever struggled with depression? That you've ever been plagued by despair? that you've ever been under the heavy blanket of thinking that it would never be different than it is today. Dr. Nikolai suggests that relational dynamics, both on a personal and international level, level, which make up the basic nature of life, have remained constant over time. How then, he asks, do we explain the explosive increase in depression and hopelessness, Pointing to the undercutting of spiritual resources in the past few decades, Dr. Nikolai says this, historians and social scientists tell us that we have fewer spiritual resources to draw from than any time in Western cultural history. Some say that our culture has forsaken its spiritual roots, that we live in an overtly secular society without even the pretense of spiritual values. Many young people today feel that their, cultures, their culture fails to provide answers to questions of purpose and meaning and destiny. We fail, they feel, to provide some reason for hope. The consequence is that we are now a cult, in a cultural crisis and living what has been called in this age of despair. We hear of our spiritual vacuum or our crisis of meaning, and these terms are commonplace to us. How do we have what Cyprian and the believers in the third century experienced? How is it that we can face the sufferings and develop a more robust hope in the midst of them? Turn to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 12. It's a short verse, but a powerful one. It says, return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that you will, I will restore twice as much to you. Prisoners of hope. What 
a term, prisoners of hope, this robust hope, this resilient hope, this hope that binds you to it so that no matter what you face, no, ever, no, no matter what might threaten you to toss you off, no matter what waves hit you, that you are held strongly, so strongly as if in a prison by hope. What does it mean for you to be a prisoner of hope, for me to be a prisoner of hope, held firmly no matter what comes? Our grounding passage today is in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 13, it says, When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what it said. It is said and puts an end to all arguments. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. Listen, friends, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The point the author of Hebrews is making for us as well as the original audience is that God's promises offer something sure and steady, or in the words of one commentator, a superior basis for stability in life. We aren't tossed around by everything that comes our way. We have a firm foundation. Remember God's threefold covenant to Abraham that God would give them offspring as numerous as the sands in the sea. Now, if you're working virtually and your kids are also going to school virtually, you're perhaps not as inspired by this promise. You don't want offspring as numerous as the sands of the sea. It's enough just with two or three or four. But God promised Abraham that the offering, these offspring would be as numerous as the sands, as numerous as the stars. And then God said, I will provide those offspring their own land and it will be a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then finally, God says, through those offspring, all of the earth will be blessed. All nations, all people will be blessed through them. All this is found in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to 3. God not only promises, but God also swears to accomplish it. There's a double certainty as if God's trying to get across to us. I know my promise would be good enough. All I would have to do is promise, but I promise and I swear by an oath to accomplish it so that you don't miss that there's certainty in this, that I'm not going anywhere, that your foundation is firm and secure. God says, I will bless you. I will multiply you. I will bring you to a good place. And yet, the fulfillment of this promise takes time. Remember, Abraham is 100 years old, 100 years old when the promise was fulfilled, and you thought you were getting up there in years. You're not 100, most of you, yet. And he and Sarah hold Isaac a decade and a half after that promise. 
a decade and a half after Jen, yes, I'm holding on to that promise too. 15 years later, they hold baby Isaac. They waited long and they endured patiently. We have these books. Uh, maybe you have some of them, the Elephant and Piggy series. Josiah and Ava, shout out to them. They love these books. I do too. I think this one is especially applicable. As one friend said this week on social media, this book is not just for kids, it's for adults. We've read this book often. And if you haven't, pick it up because it is a good message. Gerald, the elephant, has to wait through all the pages. He feels like he's going to lose it. Groans, his groans fill the page as he can hardly stand waiting, right? It takes so long, but in the end, it's worth it. Imagine waiting 15 years for God to fulfill the promise to Abraham and Sarah. Oh, wait, most of us here don't have to imagine. You don't have to imagine because you've experienced it or you are experiencing it now. You're waiting for the fulfillment of a promise. For some of us, the bodies that we are experiencing right now and the pain in them, you're still waiting for the full healing and redemption and restoration that for some of us will be waiting for our whole life. Waiting is not easy. Not easy for a cartoon elephant, but certainly not easy for us or for Abraham and Sarah. Just because it says they waited and endured patiently doesn't mean that they didn't struggle with that waiting. We receive God's promises though in the waiting. Think about this for a moment. The waiting and the trust and the continuing to hope is part of our job as believers. It's part of our job. We don't get instant hope, instant faith. We can get so used to it. Just add water to anything, right? Even those, those containers of just add water. So you shake it up and you pour it on and we get so used to groceries delivered to our door and we get so used to, here's all that you need for the menu. All you have to do is put this stuff together and you can make it blue apron and others provide things straight to our door. Or if you wanna even take it a step further, fast food or DoorDash, they deliver it already. We don't have to wait. But God doesn't traffic in just add water and mix saints. As one commentator says, God is more interested in our growth than God is in our getting. Waiting becomes very essential and a useful means towards that end. God doesn't traffic in add water and mix saints. The author of Hebrews writes to believers who are in the midst of the struggle, most likely going through persecution and suffering right as they receive this letter. They're in the chaos. What will hold them? The author of Hebrews uses sailing imagery, this picture of an anchor. We have an anchor for the soul, both sure, that is secure, safe, sound, unyielding, and steadfast, that is reliable, established, guaranteed. The word of hope, this word for hope here used in verse 18 is, is different than the way we use the word hope. We talk about a future hope as, as something that is desirable and something that could be. Something, oh, I hope it'll happen. I hope I get to do that someday. That's what I think when I see some pictures or experiences that others have had. But Hebrews, this author of Hebrews says this, that our hope is both firm 
and secure. It's not just desirable for us. It's not just something we wish upon, but it's actually sure. It's something we can grasp onto as if it were happening right now. It's a promise, something we know for sure. What will hold you as you wait, as you trust the promises of God? What holds you in hope? I would say it's Jesus Christ himself. We can have no more security than this, Jesus Christ, the one who entered into the sanctuary, anchored to the heart of God. As one commentator says, nothing can move this anchor for it is immovable in its sacrificing and redeeming love. That's Jesus. He holds us in this hope. We're held in this hope by the one who goes before us. Just as scouts went ahead of early settlers or Native Americans would send someone ahead to make sure there was safe passageway for everyone else watching for danger, ensuring that they would be able to make it through. So Jesus has gone before us. Just put a word in the chat for a moment. What has Jesus been to you? Jesus, Jesus, our leader, who is able to take us safely and surely to the other side. Jesus, our merciful and understanding high priest who is familiar and empathizes with our suffering. Jesus, the one who enters into our situation and who offers himself for us. Jesus, who sacrificed himself once and for all, and who intercedes as our high priest. Jesus, who enters in through the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, verse 19 says, which is referring to the most holy place, that sacred place right in the very presence of God. Some of you are singing that song, we have this anchor that keeps the soul. That is the resounding song of our hearts. We have this anchor. We must not confuse true Christian hope with what the world often calls hope. In a letter to Thomas More, English poet Lord Byron wrote, But what is hope? Nothing but the paint on the face of existence. The least touch of truth rubs it off, and when we see what a hollow-cheeked harlot we have gotten a hold of. Well, that's inspiring. This speaks to a hope that is the, in the form of wishful thinking. And once it faces hard reality, it can't survive. In the words of playwright Jean Kerr, hope is the feeling you have that the feeling you have isn't permanent. For a believer, that's just not how we would divine hope. When we say be a voice of hope, as part of our calling and our mission, it is not something that's vapor. It's not something that can quickly be moved or removed. This emotion falls so far short of the Christian hope. You see, Christian hope is gritty and resilient. Christian hope is enduring and steadfast. Christian hope is grounded in revelation, nurtured by the Holy Spirit, and firm in the future that is coming. True hope produces purity patience, fulfillment, joy, and stability. In the scriptures, hope brings forth fruit in our lives. It's enduring and steadfast. We have an anchor, Jesus, that holds us in hope. Hope causes us to step out and serve, Tracy, just like you mentioned, to step out and serve even before you feel like it. Before you have it all figured out, hope causes us to speak into someone else's life that which is not as if it were. 
As one minister said, we rely on our feelings to tell us when to step out. Yet God shows up when we're feeling ridiculously normal. We're just called to step out. As a prisoner of hope, to step out and to claim those things that are promises, that are sure and steadfast because of God. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 23 puts it this way. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who is, has promised is faithful. Let us hold unswervingly to this confession of hope without wavering, for the one who promises it, friends, is faithful. I saw this video and it moved me and I didn't realize Pastor Sam's story was about uh, dogs today. I just love that from miniature pigs to dogs. It's just fantastic. So beautiful and so fun to see all your kids with their dogs and what they love about them. Um, but I saw this video and wanted to share it with you and it fits perfect with our dogs today. How does... You had some tissue handy for that one. This this panic attack, this anxiety, um, whatever she's in the midst of, this dog steps up. Yes, Ernie, this dog is God working through him and holding on to her, holding on to her, anchoring her. Sometimes you might feel yourself go adrift. You might feel yourself in despair, or you might feel darkness press in, or you might not know what the future looks like, or you might wonder what 
tomorrow will hold. Imagine hope. Imagine Jesus holding you, sometimes getting in your face, sometimes just bringing you in close, that no matter what fear, no matter what anxiety, no matter what pain, that in the midst of it, hope can rise up and hold you, grounding you, anchoring you, giving you a firm foundation. Think of Jesus as that kind of anchor. In the discipleship group, I've been so blessed as we've been reading through the book of John. This group of 12, as we've been going through this time together, has been a gift to me. And this last week, one of the verses that we read as we've been going through the book of John was John chapter 1, verse 29. And as I read that verse on the morning that I had worship, I just was captivated by this verse. It's where John says, look the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. And suddenly Jesus was saying to me, look at me, fix your eyes on me. I take away the sin of the world. I take away the suffering of the world, the grief of the world, the pain of the world, the homelessness, all the pain, every bit, the abuse, all the things that we hear about and all the things that we're burdened by. I take that, I take it on me. Now look, fix your eyes on me. So I leave you with those words that hope can rise in us. We can be anchored in hope just like those believers in the third century by fixing our eyes on Jesus. These aren't just empty words and empty promises. There's an oath behind them. There's a promise. There's a commitment to fulfill them. Fix your eyes on Jesus. This is the anchor for your soul and for mine, no matter what comes. And my prayer, friends, is that like those believers who faced the plague in 251, that like those believers who had more resilience and strength and deeper care for one another through their suffering, that God will do the same for the church today and that he will hold us and hold you in the midst. In benediction, let us pray. Oh, Jesus, I don't know who's going through what right now, but I'm just pausing to pray. And if anyone feels impressed to, you're welcome to put in the chat right now to add what you would especially like to call out to God for in this moment. What would you like to reach out to grasp hold of God's hand with today? Whatever it is that we are struggling with, whatever places we need the, the light of your hope to shine in, oh God, please surround each one, oh God. God, would you hold us as a people, and I pray that you would develop in us a greater resilience and a greater hope and a greater strength as a community of Christians all around the world, that you would strengthen your church through this time. God, may we be able to be witnesses of your love, not only among each other, but for all of those who are in need right now. God, we ask this because of your grace. Now, my dear brothers and sisters, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope overflow with hope, be anchored in hope, be grounded in hope, 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. May God bless you. Oh, I'm so glad you've been blessed by this message today. May, may God bless you. May God bless your family as you go into this next week. We look forward to seeing you again.